Welcome to coffeeis.me podcast, where me means you, or more precisely, us. This is the show where your host, Valerian, without using any interrogation techniques, convinces coffee professionals to reveal their secrets to teach and inspire you to make better coffee and earn a few bucks on the side, if that's what you fancy. Let the show begin. Hello, coffee friend. I hope by now I can call you friends. <laughs> Welcome to coffees.me podcast. I'm your host, Valerian Rala. Thank you for spending your valuable time with us. I highly appreciate it. Did you ever wonder what do the coffee importers do except taking our hardly earned money? Well, if you did, this episode is for you. Obviously, they do much more than taking our money. In my experience, a good relation with a coffee importer is vital to create your successful coffee portfolio. In my European coffee business, we work with few European importers, and I have to say, with most of them, we have great relations, and some of them we are lucky to call friends. If you are looking for an importer, check out our list I created and constantly updating at Bootcamp Coffee. You can find the link to this list in this episode's show notes. For this episode, I decided to interview Jean Halen from 3 to Cup. I had a chance to meet him in person at the 2015 World Aeropress Championship where he stood next to me when Green Plantation won the title. I can't stop to think that perhaps, perhaps he was our lucky charm. More importantly, I love how open he was to discuss sensitive issues we roasters sometimes have with the importers. I believe that he will give us a very good insight how importers think and what kind of weapons to use against them. <laughs> Seriously, we love 3 to cup and we love Jean, and I hope this episode will answer some questions you might have but never had a chance to ask a coffee importer. So in this episode, Jean will tell us how does the coffee get from origin to your roasters, what does he think about the direct trade, when is he happy and when not happy to send out samples, he will reveal his secret, how can he find the best lot in the field. We will also talk about how should coffee producers contact coffee importers if they want to sell their coffee. Jean will also reveal what is the ideal customer for a coffee importer. And no, Jean did not mention green plantation. This episode is longer than usual, so let's just do it. Hi Jean, I'm very excited to have you on this podcast. I work a lot with importers, we work with you, you know that, and I was always mega interested in, in your work, what you do. So thanks for accepting the invitation. No problem, Valeria, it's an honor to be in your show. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> so what is your coffee story? How did the coffee get you? Well, the coffee story is already 15 years old, and uh, I always loved coffee, and I always liked the moment around coffee and then one day I was looking for a new challenge and I saw an advertisement in the newspaper where they were looking for a junior coffee trader in a small coffee trading company in Bruges and in uh, Belgium. So I applied and uh, it took them two years to educate me on coffee and ever since it's been, yeah, uh, how do you say it, a ride, a wild ride in the coffee world. 
So um, I started in, as, a, as a trader, as a volume, as a commodity trader. And then about five years ago, I was fed up and I was looking for, I was fed up in the commodity world because I felt that I was becoming more of a banker than really a person working with coffee and producers and coffee roasters. And I believed in the third wave uh, coffee scene. And so I quit my job at the commodity trading and I started drafting a business plan for a coffee importing company in Belgium with a focus on micro roasters. Mm. And that's how I ended up starting Tree to Cup. So 32 cup, like you in the Americans like to call it because it's red like that, um, is actually pronounced Tree to Cup. So it means that we're actually there to help the supply chain between the tree and the to the cup. So that's in brief how I got to it. Cool. I I always make that mistake, by the way. I'm trying not to. The 32. No, no, but it's very. We, we've 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 accepted it in a way um, because it's. But in, in it's not bad as well. But it's it's uh, we always pronounce it as tree to cup, and okay, it's what it is. You need in this let's say virtual world, you need a, a name that that is easily uh, pronounced to to have a 32cup.com was still available so that's oh the co domain name thing yeah you're yeah right. the domain name and yeah five five letters say it all huh? that's mm -hmm. also very the symbolics are very uh, the symbols are very very important for us as well i like that play i it took me some time until i get it i think you yeah. had to tell me that it's actually three to copy and i was like oh my gosh that's really cool i i, I like that <laughs> name yeah it was also a revelation for me, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, that's actually funny. That's actually cool. So tell me yeah. one thing. Uh, you said that you worked for a commodity company. You were trading like a, like a stockbroker. Mm -hmm. Have you been drinking coffee then? Or how, how, what, do you, what does a, you know, commodity, a coffee commodity trader do? Do you drink guys coffee? Do you evaluate it somehow? Or do you just look at the numbers and trade? Well, in a way, uh, you also taste coffee, but... It's very different because you look at, first of all, you're cupping on number of defects, which is, is completely different. Um, so you cup to see if it's, if it's clean or not. And then second of all, you look at the stability. Is it clean and is this taste stable? Okay, that's the only thing in a way that counts because a lot of bigger roasters look at taste profiles. We need acidity or we need medium body or we need uh, a nice aroma. They don't look at, at the full balanced cup of coffee because they always talk in components of a blend. Eh? So they look at it very differently. So you can have a guy that is looking for 10 containers of, of uh, light acidity, medium body coffee. And then you come up with, yeah, you, you can go for a Colombian or Honduras, but then you're talking the, the, the commercial grade coffee. It's a very different way of looking at it. So you end up talking volume and, and cents per pound. So small price differences that you're trying to breach by being creative on, on different origins, knowing the origin. So you, you have to cup, but you cup from a different perspective. You look at replacements. Okay? I could replace Honduras SHG with a Colombian Excelsior or 
or you replace a Brazil with a GMA5 from Ethiopia because you understand that certain roasters see that as a replacement for each other. Cool. So you were smuggling in a third way of coffee to your uh, previous work and that's what made your move or how did you meet uh, the specialty grade scene? Well, I met it actually pretty early. I think it was in 2004 or 2005 that I was in Costa Rica. And at that time, there was a, a coffee crisis. The prices were very low. And the Costa Rican, uh, let's say, coffee growers were actually very smart. They were really marketing their coffees. And one of the, 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 the issues that I had as being a European coffee trader was that there was no specialty coffee scene in Europe. So you have a discussion with, with a nice Costa Rican person that wants to sell you his best coffee. And the only thing you can say is, hey, sorry, man, I'm, I'm European. We, we don't understand these prices. But I got some samples with me. I cut the samples. I noticed there was a difference. But the problem for me was that there was no market in Europe at that point. Everybody was used to, let's say, good commercial-grade coffees. Um, so it, the, I, I kept on following that evolution. I saw what, what the people of Starbucks were doing. I saw what happened in Costa Rica. I saw how it was very sustainable, what the, what, what the whole scene was doing. I saw the rise of Costa Rica and I saw a couple of other origins following. So it kept my, my interest and every time I went back, I cupped these coffees and I got more and more interested and I smuggled in some of these good stuff and only showed it to people that actually understood what quality should be. And they came back, yeah, this is good, but we don't have a market. We should try a single origin. Then you saw the price. So it's always some sort of a fight until I think 2008, 2009, where you saw that the scene in Europe was starting to change and you had better demand from Scandinavia, the UK came up. Um, so that was all starting to happen. And, and you had all this third wave independent coffee roasters that became more popular. Some of them were already there for quite a, a while. But they, became, they gained in popularity and you went, I went there, I cupped their coffee, I adapted my coffee profiles to their coffee profile. So you, you go into it, you try to understand what's behind it. And what's behind it is for me a very strong movement because it's actually about the product. It's actually by about who's making the product, who's roasting the product. All these people involved are people with skills. And that's fantastic about it. That's why I believe it's such a strong movement. And you can't just say, yeah, it's, it's a hype. It's, it's something that will pass on. No, because it's a very, very wide community. It's very real. It's about real people. And it's about pleasing the people that are paying for it. So your consumer is also real. And that's why I believe it's a very strong movement. It's not just something that says, okay, Oh, because today it's blue, we have to all follow blue. No, a regional roaster will make his coffee based on the regional taste. So yeah, in a way, you can't beat that. If I like more sweet because I'm from Antwerp, then the Antwerp roaster will make more sweet coffee because I'm not alone in Antwerp that like that sweet. I like that. So, I yeah. really like that. It's a... Uh... You know, I think the specialty grade is here and I don't know how big it will become, but for sure it's growing at the time 
And there'll be always people who want something special. They just don't want the regular, you know, uh, XY brand from the uh, Tesco shelf, right, for mm. cheap, cheap money. But they mm. want this story, as you said, the farmer, the roaster, you know, how was it roasted? Where was it uh, grown? And they want to enjoy the whole experience and they are willing to pay for that. So that, that's a yes. good thing. No, I think the consumer is much more aware of what he's doing. And it's not only on coffee you see it. You see it also on meat, on beer, on, on even on milk, on water. People have opinions on water and they're willing to spend money on their water because they prefer more uh, dry water or whatever. But in a way, these people have their choice today. Where, let's say, in the 70s and the 80s, people were already happy that they had access to it. And that's where the supermarkets came in. The supermarkets were able to bring a product close to the consumer at a cheap price, at an affordable price. Today, the consumer can afford a lot. So he's, he has the choice to make. Do I spend more money on coffee because I like coffee? Or do I spend more money on wine? Or do I spend more money on the best meat in the world? He has that choice to make. Exactly. So you said also something interesting about creating relations that you know uh there are some uh uh in this movement especially great we create relations but you know what there's one relation which is not that clear at least i think so between coffee roaster and importers i think many coffee roasters have no clue what importers do <laughs> so, so can you describe us for example how does the coffee get from origin to your warehouse what are the steps okay I normally have a nice little drawing that I give to the people that start with our company where I'm showing the different steps. So you actually start, if you look at the export process in the origins, at most places it either starts at the mill or it starts um, on the boat. Okay. So if you start at the mill, you have to take or buy the coffee let the people locally put it in a container or wherever, if you want to air, air freight it, put it in a box and bring it on a pallet to the to DHL or other, or FedEx or UPS or TND. Sorry if I don't know them all. Um, but if you go for containers, you fill the container at the mill. That container is sealed. So it's officially sealed, locked, so that it can't be opened without being noticed at the mill it moves towards the port if it can be 50 kilometers but it for example if you do that in Bujumbura in Burundi it will be I think it's about 3,000 kilometers it's going to be 14 days on the road okay so you seal the container there's an independent guy looking at the seal giving the seal writing everything down makes a, a paper which is actually your title of property okay so the container moves to the port, is shipped on the boat. So in a lot of cases, it goes straight on the boat by the exporter. Okay. Then we give the shipping instructions to the shipping line. The shipping line brings the container to the port of Antwerp or New Jersey or Busan or Melbourne. So it's, a, it's your instructions that count. Okay. You pay a fee for that shipping rate. So you have a shipping rate. So when it arrives in the port of destination, which in our case is mostly Antwerp or New Jersey, um, the 
the coffee, the container is unloaded from the boat and is put on the quay. On the quay, it's still in the hands of the shipping line. You give the original documents of the title of property. So in, in shipping lines, that's the bill of lading, the BL. You give that to the trucking company that goes and pick up the container on the quay. Okay, they go with the truck, they give the papers, the shipping line puts the container on the truck and the truck drives off. Okay, the coffee is, the container is still not opened. So you tell to the trucking company, come to that warehouse, we'll open the container. So at the, at the warehouse, somebody will take the papers and will look, okay, the seal number is this, the container number is this, um, the weight is this. So they all check that before they even open it. If there's a, a different seal, they will warn, uh, for example, the authorities to come by and say, okay, you here to be to, to be present at the unloading because we think there's something wrong with, with the seal, so somebody might have opened it. You can also uh, alert your insurance company. So the container is opened and is inspected at the first site. So that means that somebody of the warehouse or yourself can be present to when it's open to smell actually what's coming out of the container. But don't, because don't forget this coffee has been in there for 30 days or 60 days in some cases. So you want to be there if there's something wrong. Then you do a first inspection, every, everything looks okay. You start to unload and if upon unloading there seems to be something wrong, you can also alert the insurance company. But in let's say 90% of the cases, there's nothing wrong and everything is nicely unloaded and you take your samples on 50% of the bags and you cup the sample. So that's about everything up to the warehouse uh, in the port. If you want to load it out or export it to the roasters, then the process goes from we put it on a, on a truck and the trucking company comes to pick it up and brings it to the roaster. It's interesting though because I never heard this and it's uh, kind of good to know why if I see on your offer a coffee and it says it's on a, on, it's on a way, I'm like, what do they mean on a way? It's like in two months. So basically mm -hmm. it's, it's loaded and it's on a ship and it's, you know, sailing. to. Your we place. have control. In a way we have a control. Once we announce the, the, the shipping date or the arrival date, we have a full control of the logistics. So what was the, you said that you uh, have to break the seal and check for uh, smells and kind of e evaluate the container at your uh, warehouse. What was the worst story you encountered? Ooh, we have a couple of those. <laughs> um, uh, one was um, a coffee from Honduras, I think it was. And it was packed in jute bags, but the jute bags were cleaned in diesel and gas oil. Uh -huh. So, the 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 in a way a jute bag always smells, eh? so it's it's not uncommon in a way that they also smell to for petroleum, or in a way for oils because they use some sort of vegetable vegetable oil to clean the bags. Um, so by the time it arrived in in the port, if you opened the container, it was like it was like you were in in a, in a, in a in a station next to uh, a gas oil station next to the the the, the highway, it w it smelled. It was incredible, and the coffee as well tasted like diesel. It was disgusting. 
Wow. That was one of the, the things that you said, come on, this is, you can't do anything anymore with that coffee. Another example was that, for example, between, I think it was in Tanzania, between the mill and the port, the coffee must have been switched. So all the bags looked normal. There were 320 bags in a container. By the time it arrived in Antwerp, it seemed that the, in 100 bags, they switched the coffee partly with salt crystals. <laughs> oh my but it's very, yeah, but it's very weird because you get a sample. They take a sample on 50% of the, of, the, of the bags. So it was only on one third and it was, it were, there were quite big crystals. So not everything came through. And so we were cupping the coffee and we said, what's this type of taste? It's salt, but you can't explain it until you start going into the bags and you see what's going on with this coffee. And then you find crystals and then you start sorting out the number of bags. And then we saw a hundred bags had crystals. And, and in total, I think for the six tons of coffee, I think they switched three and a half tons by, by salt crystals. But, but can you imagine doing that? Can you imagine stopping a container, opening the container, getting 100 bags out, getting 50% of that bag out, and switching it into uh, salt crystals? That's just crazy. And what, what can you do well, since it's in your warehouse? <laughs> Destroy the coffee and ask the insurance to pay it. Oh, so insurance pays it. It's not the... Uh, exporter farmer slash producer it's the insurance company who deals with this yes and the ex and the, the insurance company will will try to claim back the money where it's lost eh? so it's gonna try to find the people in origin that are responsible for that but try to find the tanzanian that is responsible for switching three and a half tons of coffee into salt crystals that's just so crazy it's, it's crazy because we're always talking with let's say countries not always but in a lot of cases countries that have have a different uh, uh, political system or, or judiciary system so you can't just go and call a lawyer and say hey uh, i have a problem in uh, in congo please go and get the guy no, it's, it's almost impossible so that's why it's all about people and what we do you have to trust the people in origin so that they do your job or they do their job properly and you can trust what they're doing. Yeah, I totally agree. By the way, you said you mentioned that uh, you cup the sample, obviously, when it arrives. How do you know that it's the same what you bought? Do you cup it at the origin before you buy it or do they send you samples from the origin or how, how does this work? Well, you have two ways. Huh? Either you go to origin and we do that in a lot of cases, of course. And and then you appoint or you work together with partners locally and you trust them and they can try it once and screw it up once. Uh, they only have one chance. But if you go to origin and you come with a good plan and you find the right people, it's in a lot of cases very easy to work because coffee people you recognize from a distance. Let's say it like that. You You really see honesty in people that's that's what we all have in this coffee world is that you still recognize honest counterparties because that's how you have to look at it eh? they 
there was a nice scheme in Brazil, I think, if I'm not wrong, it's about 10 years ago, where in two months' time, there were more than 80 containers that were shipped with, sh with sand in it. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So it was a scheme that was actually well built because these guys shipped their first containers and, and apparently they were very good at it because I didn't, I didn't encounter it, but I heard the story. They were very good at it and they came with some more and they were good at that as well. And then after one year, people were buying more and more from them. And so they did the scheme in two months time and I think they collected $2 million with it. And was this the producer of that coffee who did the sand trick, or was it? No, the these were this was exporters. Oh, okay. So, wow. uh, no, but that's that's it's pure banditism. Eh? It is. It's it's horrible. It's, like, it's scary. <laughs> yeah, but in a way, you should never forget that you're always talking about a lot of money, and you're talking with about a lot of money in in very poor countries. Yeah. This this whole situation bringing me into the next question, which I always wanted to ask a coffee importer, by the way. Uh, mm -hmm. What do you think of the direct trade movement? And just to clarify for people who don't know what direct trade is, direct, is, direct trade is when uh, a coffee roasters go and source their coffee directly from the farmers. So what do you think as a coffee importer about this uh, movement? I'm very pro direct trade. Um, I think every roaster, in a way, should try to do it, at least. Um, but on the other side, I'm also against it. Uh, well, not against it. I'm opposing it, in a way. Because uh, it sometimes creates an imbalance in, in, a, in a local market. Because if a roaster goes there, he comes with his idea of what a coffee should cost. So he's going to talk... To the producer and say okay i'll take your best coffee for i don't know 400 450 cents which is fantastic for the producer don't get me wrong but he's never talking about the 55 or 60 percent other coffees on that guy's farm and that's where i'm opposing i i, I we look at the coffee with the producer we're going to try to help him on all his coffee from the best to the worst that's how we look at it. And that's what we're trying to do is help the guy to be an empowered entrepreneur, to really be strong on his own. If he can sell his coffee at 450 cents to one guy and it's 20 bags and he's producing a total of 100 bags, he's going to sit on his 80 other bags thinking he's going to sell it as well at 450 or at least at 300. But if you have a market which is at 110 cents or 120 cents at the moment, that's going to be very hard. He's going to be very hard to sell it. He can be very proud. And in the end, he's going to have a very old product and he can't sell it at all. Are these uh, situations like happening in the real world? So are you encountering when a farmer, let's say, sold his best lot to a, a roastery and then he has having a trouble to sell his uh, medium level or, let's say, uh, worse lot? Of course. Think about it yourself. Imagine that you're a coffee farmer and a nice guy from Slovakia comes by and says, look, I'll pay you three times the, the market price for your coffee because you're a nice guy, you're a good farmer, you're in a perfect location, and by coincidence, I'm here and I can buy 20 bags. Okay, 
So the guy is going to be excited. So you imagine yourself that you're a farmer and say, okay, in the past 10 years I've sold my coffee at 100 and suddenly somebody comes and pays four times the price. What do I do with the 80 other bags? I wait for the next Slovakian to come by or I wait for his cousin from the United States to come by and buys that as well. I hope, well, the crop is still, let's say, two months ago, so I can still sit on this coffee because I have the best coffee in the region because this guy paid me this price. I can sit another two months on these coffees and <clears throat> uh, somebody will pass by, like this Slovakian guy that came by, okay? And, and after two months, nobody comes. So he's still sitting on his 80 bags, still dreaming about this 450, while in the meantime, his coffee is getting older. Mm. And you're at the end of the season, so less people are interested in it. So in the end, he ends up selling it as end of the crop or past crop. Or he can try and sit on it for another couple of months and try to mix it then into his new crop to the crazy Slovakian. So it, no, but it's, it's, it's a very delicate balance. It's, it, I'm, I'm exaggerating, of course. Yeah. I'm, I'm not saying everything is like that, but we have to be very aware that there's, that there's a critical balance that sometimes is breached. I'm not saying it's everywhere, and, it's, and, and most of the specialty coffee roasters, uh, coffee producers have learned that in the meantime. So you see that they're coming now with the best of the crop, the second best of the crop, the third best of the crop, and, and so they're trying to find systems in, in, in ways so they can continue to sell, because it's also about cash flow. You said also that uh, you are pro Uh, direct trade in some level so what would be your argument for doing the direct trade is that again about the money so at least you can get more no the, no okay yeah it's about money of course but on the other hand it's also about relationship it's mm -hmm. about partnering up it's about sharing it's about acknowledging who is doing what for who okay in a way the producer should be happy to sell his is is happy to sell his coffee to a roaster direct because he sees where his product is going. But also he needs to understand that what the roaster does and the barista does is also very important in the chain because they are adding all the value to it. Okay? If you see on the whole value chain and why people are able to pay such a high prices to the producers, it's because they can sell it very expensive. So the producer is nothing without, let's say, the roaster and the barista, while the roast and the barista are nothing with the, without the, the producer. So the direct chain is very good because it connects people and empowers people and makes people understand that you have to work together in this. I think direct trade is very good because it, it, it highlights the cooperation. And in that cooperation, we as importers have also a job to do. I have to say that even though we do not, my Slovak company, just to clarify, does not do direct trade. We sometimes do direct relation. So we connect with the farmers and kind of uh, just have fun together and yes. update them, you know, what's happening with their coffee, make pictures. Because I see how proud are they, you know, for their lots. And that yes. makes us also feel great that we don't butcher their, you know, treasure, <laughs> that we do yeah, a good yeah, job no, with but... it. <laughs> But it's very important. I think we're, we're all uh, entrepreneurs, so we all have to learn from each other. We're not just 
the north and the south anymore. We're not smart and stupid. We're not uh, loaded with money and poor. No, today we're we're all creating something on our territory. Okay, if it's a producer creating the best coffee, or if it's a barista creating the best cappuccino, or if it's a roaster creating the best roasted coffee, or if it's an importer bringing the coffee on time, bringing the coffee to the door. All these steps are very important in that chain. And direct sourcing is a fantastic thing. And we support it from, for our customers as well, if we can. Because we are, we are the first ones to, to support it, but it has to make sense. There, if it's for a customer, no problem. If it's for some, just somebody that got stuck in Rwanda, uh, with three bags of coffee, and then it's a different ballgame. Yeah? Mm. Okay. Be realistic about it. So for me, the advantage to buying through importer, and that's individual, because we are a small company. My company in Slovakia is very small. So my main advantage is that you are taking the risk. And as you said, there is a lot of risk. <laughs> and that's, the, that's why direct trade, the trial of direct trade is sometimes good as well. No? Because people realize that what we do as an importer is is we do a lot of risk management first of all risk management on quality but second of all on shipment uh, third it's on on financing okay because you also mm -hmm. have to finance the coffee 60 days until it's at the roaster uh, insure it uh, all these these things we do that and if you saw the SCAA um, calculation sheet of of where are the added values made yeah, we do it for, I think it's one and a half percent of the value of the coffee, which is nothing. Yeah, I, I did that uh, calculation once and I was like, oh, this is pretty okay for us, you know, as a roaster, it's not uh, not a big deal to pay. Uh, but no. there are a lot of different people, Some somebody wants to do their own and fine. I mean, some companies are in, big enough to do their yeah. sourcing already. But, but uh, I'm wondering us, if you can do it on 100% of your coffee as a roaster as well, because you can predict your sales, but your sales are faster than the production of the coffee. So in a way, if you decide in February to buy 20 bags from Costa Rica, by the time it arrives in July, let's say, it could be that you need 30 bags, or it could be that you only need 15 bags. Or So, so if, I think for a roaster to do only direct sales uh, is kind of hard. Uh, or you have to have a lot of money and good warehouses to store the coffees. Mm -hmm. I yeah, I think that what I know in United States, in my neighborhood companies which do some level of direct trade, they do only some level, and they're pretty big companies because, you know, in one case they have their own farm, and also they have some relation with one or two farms, and they buy you know direct trade from them, but they still buy from importers a lot. So mm -hmm. I think yeah, we. By by starting Tree to Cup five years ago, I we are pointing out that we still have a value to add in the whole system because otherwise we would never I would never have started this company. And we focus our our focus is on the logistics and on the sourcing because we are going into the origins. We have our networks. We go there. We try to find the right producers. We try to support the right producers by buying every coffee they produce and so that's how we 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 have in certain origins really are our ways to get to the best coffee and let's say in a 
in a beneficial way for both the producer and for us and then for the roaster in the end. But the roaster looks at buying from us more opportunistically, while the producer is really depending on what we do. How do you find these producers? Uh, there is thousands of farmers all over the world. Who gives you the tips? Tell us. <laughs> Oof, uh, it's different ways. Um, it's by talking to a lot of people in origin. A guy knows a guy that knows a guy. That's that's one of the ways it works. Uh, there's the cup of excellence, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's trial and error. Okay, you come by a guy. He claims to have the best coffee. You ship it. It arrives. It's not that, or it's perfect, or so it's it's yeah, it's it's experience. It's uh, it's the network. Uh, yeah. So it's it's in every origin. It's a bit different. Uh, like for example, let's say Burundi, you find a certain region, and in that region you start, and in that then once you start it, you go for a second washing station, a third washing station, and that's how you grow it, and and you try and you educate a bit how they have to pick, how they have to dry, how they, how they have to ferment, how they do the selection of the cherries, and it passes on. It's, Small communities uh, looking to to increase their output and looking to increase their revenues. So, if somebody has a good way of doing it, and and every year we're proving it again, and every year we're back, and every year we pay a bit more, and every year, yeah. So, that's how it works. Huh? It's a very slow process in a way. You know, one of the biggest, one of the most often emails I get through my uh, online education platform, United States, is how can we sell our green coffee? <laughs> There's a lot of producers who contact us with emails or through Facebook that they want to sell their coffee to us. And we don't sell green coffee. We do online education. I almost wonder if this is the, one of the biggest uh, spams in the industry, the green coffee unloading. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know how... In some cases, I know these guys and I want to help them. So... Yeah. What do you think is the right approach to um, what do you think is the right approach to approach an importer? That's a nice sentence. So how, how they should approach you? Well, we have quite a standard way of doing that. Uh, we always ask first to send a sample and really label them in the right way, okay, so that we can really see what coffee is behind it. If the coffee passes on our table, then we go and see who's behind it. If we if we trust a guy or girl or or, or or company behind it, we will try to do a first purchase. If we don't trust it in a way so they're quite new and, and there's no background, we will probably try to find a network or within our network somebody that could pick up the coffee. Okay. Could be uh, 20 bags, could also be five times 20 bags, could be a full container. But we will use our way then and then we'll buy the coffee. And we try to, to be honest about it, straightforward and honest. Not everybody likes this model. Uh, they all hope that we just buy and they just send coffee, but uh, there's a hard reality about it. So it means that if they send you samples, you give them a feedback. So let's say why you did or why you did not buy it. Yes. Cool. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. There's also a limit in what we can buy. There's a hard reality about the limit in 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 in, in our financial means, in the 
the let's say the volume we can get from a from an origin for a certain crop and we are able to sell as a company there's limits to to things but if a coffee is fantastic and we can get our hands on it we'll, we'll do it definitely <laughs> but the problem is and and that's also one of the things you notice after all these years is that every producer in every country has the best coffee in the world well, we, we believe also that we roast the best coffee on the world, right? Yes. And so it's it's just, you know, if you do something, you believe that you are the best and you hope. It's that fantastic. And it's sometimes very hard to bring the reality. Eh? You said that quality is important for you when you select coffee. How important are certificates? By certificates, I mean fair trade, organic, OOTS or OOTZ, what do you call that? <laughs> so how important That's... are they when you're selecting coffee? Robert Thurinson has given it the, the genuine name sticker coffee. Yeah, that's a good okay. one. Because people only buy it because of the sticker. Mm-hmm. Uh, for us, it's not important. Uh, it's, I think it's actually on the third place in our hierarchy of decisions. Hmm. Uh, third or fourth, actually. Um, so first is quality. Second is who's behind it. Okay, how, how genuine is this product? Is this a lucky shot or is it really specialty, made to be specialty? Um, and third could be, is there a traceability sticker on it? Uh, that could be part of the decision. But it's for us not the main decision. What, the, what we do, however, is have certain roasters that ask us, look, we want to do a, a project on with a certain sticker. Do you have good supplies on that? Mm-hmm. And that's something we can do because we have certain cooperatives that have fantastic coffee in there uh, but for example that have a thousand tons of fantastic coffee which is impossible to sell as a as let's say micro lot or a, or, a, <clears throat> or a high specialty because you're talking coffees between 82 84 sometimes 85 um, and you can't just say which you know what uh, the, from the thousand tons split it up into thousand lots of one ton so no but these guys, for example, have sometimes an, an OOTS or a fair trade certificate. And then we'll try to sell the project as a fair trade project or as an OOTS. And we still take the best lots out as micro lots and, and sell the micro lots. And in the meantime, sell everything else premiumized, we call it, because people are paying a premium to get the sticker. So in the end, you have a thousand tons that is optimally sold at the highest possible price. How would you think, what's the trend nowadays between the coffee roasters? How do they buy coffee? Is Are these stickers important for them? Mm, a bit depending on the markets. Are stickers important for a roaster? Uh, in Germany, yes. Um, in, in, in Scandinavia, no. Apart from organic, maybe. Uh, but that's not really, let's say, a sticker. Well, partly it's, it's also the way they grow it. Um, in the United States, it's, it's, let's say, in between. Uh, and Asia, it's not at all an issue. So you see, it's every market on its own. But Europe, in Europe in general, is quite important because they have been the first. And for a lot of markets, to be honest, if they calculate the percentage of specialty coffee in a country, in a lot of countries, sticker coffee is considered to be specialty coffee. Oh, wow. That's nasty. In the, 
Yeah, that's fair. Even in the States. Hmm. So we, it's 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 very nasty because it's it's not what specialty coffee is about. What do you think is uh, the ideal roaster and important relation? How it should look like? And do you as importer have a favorite kind of a roaster? We have a favorite type. Oof, how do they look? How does the relationship between the importer and the coffee roaster ideally look like? That's a big question. Um, in a way, it's about communication. It's about trusting the importer as well to do his job. Uh, so it could be if a roaster would send me an email saying, hey Jean, uh, I need 20 bags to be delivered in, in a week's time. What do you suggest? Uh, that's the perfect email for us because we can then have a seasonal, we can deliver him the, the best coffees at the, at the moment. On the other side, it could also be, hey Jean, we need for a year uh, a nice, clean, stable coffee. That's also ideal for us. But it's about openness and transparency in a way. It's it's you trust us on on what we we see, what we cup, what we uh, uh, supply, uh, and we trust you that you make the best product out of it. Yeah? Because there is a lot of things that can go very wrong in the roasting part of coffee. We can do the perfect importation of the perfect coffee. But if in the end you guys uh, screw it up and somebody cups in and say, hey, that's three, two cups coffee. Yeah, okay, guys, we should claim to you. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, you, said, <laughs> you said there is this trust. Hmm. I honestly, I always like to ask importers for samples because mm -hmm. there is trust and we like to work with certain importers. But, you know, in our past time, we worked with other importers too in Europe. And we got burned. Mm -hmm. Well, first, you know, sometimes it's just a, you know, honest mistake. And that happens like in every business and mm -hmm. we let it go. But it happens second time. We just stop the cooperation and we just say goodbye. So I love to ask for samples. And what I teach here in the United States is always that people should ask for samples and they should make up their mind about their portfolio. So what do you think if, uh, let's say, a newbie asks samples from you, would you send him a sample or does it have to be a company which is already established? Well, no, that's not where we, we cut, let's say, um, there's, there's a couple of things I want to say about that. First of all, we don't have a problem to send out samples. But if somebody sends me an email and says, hey, I'm uh, starting my roasting company, can you send me 20 samples of your list? Then we're going to say no. Okay, why? Uh, because sending out samples is an expensive uh, business okay it's not just about uh, the the payment of the the courier costs it's also about making the samples okay you have to get the sample out of the bag into your sample and your into your cupping lab uh, you have to repack it in small bags you have to put a, a label on it somebody has to put it in a box has to send it out so there's a lot of handling manipulation around sending a sample Okay. I'm always saying sending out samples for us costs about $100. Okay. So if you ask for samples, know that it's asking for $100 for free. Okay. Well, it's not quite free because the if 
the sample will match you know my needs i'll order a lot of coffee that's yeah yeah but you're a serious guy because we get a lot of demands we send a lot of samples i think per year we send between five thousand and and seven thousand samples out we send a lot of samples out but there's a whole lot of people that first of all never cup them which is even even it makes me really mad okay Mm -hmm. And second of all, if they cup it, they don't send us uh, their cupping results, which is even weirder. Okay, you ask us a sample, let us know what you think of it, because we don't know what you're. We try to understand what you're looking for, but sometimes we're completely wrong. Okay, it's not always about the quality; it could also be about matching what you're looking for. Okay, so samples, yes, ask for samples. We don't have a problem with it. But if the second time you ask for samples and the first time we haven't received any feedback from you, it might be become difficult. And the third time, forget about it. Uh, let me play a devil's advocate here. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I never send you feedbacks, mm-hmm. but usually but I send you, you order. <laughs> yeah, but you buy. But that's a feedback. Yeah? You liked what you cut. Yeah. And the second thing is like, auto roasters, they don't cup properly, or maybe they are shy. With their results, that's my experience. That many times people are kind of shy to uh, share their cupping results, and because cupping doesn't have to be just filling out, you know, the professional forms, it can really be just making your notes and mm-hmm. say I'd like it or not. Obviously, you would love this too, right? Yes. Uh, but my my issue was when I was starting that we knew we will not buy a pellet. We let's say will buy like a half pallet of coffee mm-hmm. because we are starting and a lot of companies make it a lot of companies don't make it so yes it is a risky business for you guys but i have to say that everybody who sent me samples in the beginning i work mm-hmm. with yeah, i work no, with because and now you I'm know we start, we're we start... not doing it valerian don't get me wrong we're doing it and we're doing it a lot but i see this forum as well as giving some sort of a warning because we've noticed, and that's we're only we're, we've only started this company three years ago, and we're very enthusiastic in what we do. But we noticed the last couple of months that we say, okay, certain people should stop asking for samples if they don't give us feedback, and it's just let's say to train their cupping skills. Yeah, okay, we have open cuppings for that, or to 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 keep the green beans in in a drawer somewhere and and just to show off when visitors are coming by and show, look, we have samples. No, it's not the way to do it. This is costing a lot of money and uh, people should be aware. We've already discussed this in the company where we say maybe we should ask for some sort of a down payment that can be deducted on the first order. Okay. I mean, that's a way to do it. I don't think we'll do it, but in a way, if you see... Sometimes the respect of for what we do at sending out samples, sometimes you would really consider that. Yeah, I, I think that's that's fair, and I'm very happy that you're honest about that. That you know that feedback if you don't get, and because I don't have to order from you if I don't like your coffee, but I have to let you know. That's just yes. fair. You know, that's just yes. how it should be. I guess. I, I I don't have a problem when people don't like the coffee, eh? but I want to know why. If they think it's a defect, okay, then they think it's a defect. If they think this is not matching their coffee, their taste profile, they have they can at least say me what taste profile they're looking for, and maybe we have something. 
we can't have everything. Look, we're trying to be the best in what we do, but there's 52 origins in the world. Uh, we're only doing 16, I think, at the moment. So you can't have everything and you can't please everybody as well. People should not buy or we don't think people would buy 100% of their green coffee needs at our place. We hope to, but yeah. at the moment we're realistic about it. Okay, cool. Yeah. Let's say tomorrow I'm starting a new company and I'm not Valerian, I'm somebody else, I'm Peter or whatever. And mm -hmm. I'm starting a new company uh, called It's Good For Me Coffee. Mm -hmm. And I want to get in touch with you and uh, possibly buy coffee from you. What's the best way to do that? How do people do that? Okay. Send me an email, coffee at 32cup.com, to say to keep it in, in my 32cup.com. Uh, send, hey, I'm Peter. I'm starting my roastery here. This is a bit of my plan. I have a 10 kilo or 15 kilo gizen uh, or a 5 kilo gizen. I, I love... Kenyans, I love uh, Colombians, I love this, I love that. Uh, do you have something for me? And so give us something of your background as well so that we can live with you and understand your first needs. And then we'll reply and say, look, this is maybe interesting for you. You want some samples, you want them green or roasted. You, we'll help you out. There's a, there's, that's, that's where we're very good at. So you're going to roast the samples for them? If needed, yes. How cool, I did not know that. Aha. <laughs> no, I roast my, I, I, you know, I trust yeah, you. But it's better, it's better to roast your own samples. Of course, okay. you, you, are, you have full control over that, yeah. Yes, but a lot of, I see that a lot of roasters are working together in certain cities in the world that guys can use their uh, sample roaster from each other and stuff like that. So we don't get a lot of that, that question, but we could do it. Uh, why not? It's cool. not uh, it's, it's not publicity for it, but in a way we do. So today we have uh, end of September, and if after listening to this podcast somebody writes you that I'm starting a company in Europe, by the way, do you sell it only in Europe or also you do United States? All over the world. Okay, so but uh, small rosters all over the world. Yes. Cool. Okay, so any roster all over the world from all mm -hmm. over the world. Uh, want uh, to buy from you or kind of check out your portfolio? What's what are your favorite lots? What do what should they pay attention to? At the moment, uh, end of September, I'm making my price list this morning. I'm very fond at the moment from El Salvador. I think mm. that's one of the best coffees we have at the moment. Nicaragua was a big hit. And we're getting to the end of our stocks there, but that was fantastic. Uh, we're gonna get some Rwanda and Burundis by, I hope, by mid-November. That's gonna be very cool because we started some new relationship as the, again. Let's say we restarted because the coffees we've cupped were fantastic. Um, that's gonna be very cool. Uh, yeah. And we have the, the Hacienda San Alberto from Colombia that just arrived in 35 kilo bags. And honestly, I think we finally found something uh, in, in Colombia that I believe in that has stability. That's, mm. that's, that's for me very important in Colombia, that, uh, to find supplies that are stable. 
but we have a couple of cool stuff at the moment, but they're, let's say, they're going out fast. And then, yeah, Kenya's in. We have a fantastic setup these days in Kenya, where we can uh, where we can have really the best lots of, of the season. We can do whatever we want with it. We do the selection locally uh, out of what is it, the three to six hundred lots per week. Uh, we take the best ones out and and we ship them all over the world. And so that's uh, that's something fantastic that we started this year and is going very well. I love your Kenyans, I have to say. <laughs> and there's one thing which I left at the end, and we are discussing now how the roster should uh, approach you. What I noticed that you, when you send out your price list, you send out the specialty grade and you send out the commercial grade. Mm-hmm. And we had a little project, we, we just was testing the market and we needed a commercial grade coffee. So I ordered some samples from you. And I was really shocked about those samples. I was like, did they mix them up? Because they all scored higher than 80 points, which is the limit mm-hmm. for specialty grade coffee. Some of them much higher than 80 points. And I was like, these coffees are very nice. Why are they on a commercial grade? So do you want to talk about your dis- distinction between the commercial grade and a specialty grade? Um yeah, I want to explain that to you because it's a question we get a lot. Why do we do the split and how do we do the split? Um, as I was telling you, we tend to buy everything we can from a producer. So there's, in a way, always some sort of a volume coffee that comes out. Okay, Those are most of the times uh, full container lots or it could be four containers. You can't sell that as a specialty coffee. Nobody believes you. So we always buy them as, we call it, high commercial grades, which for us is also an 82 plus coffee, okay? Because we're talking with the the same producers, the same exporters, the same guys that are doing the work on the micro lots and the specialty coffee, the real specialty coffee. And the real specialty coffee for me is a coffee that was done on purpose. It's the coffee that the guy believes has, has has the potential to be the best coffee he has made of the season. Mm. But his, like I was saying in the beginning, when we talked about direct trade, we also look at the 55 other percent of his production and we buy that as well. Not at the same price as a specialty lot, but also with the premium versus the commercial grades. So that's why we fetch for what we call high commercial grades, very good coffees. and. It's one of the side effects that we have since the start of Trick to Cup is that we get more and more demand on those coffees as well from quite big industrial roasters because they see that the product we're bringing to the market is first of all very stable, has scored very high on a lot of cupping tables and is the volume they need. So yeah, suddenly they call us and say, hey, can you deliver two containers of that Guatemala? Or can you deliver three containers of that Kenya? And we're able to do that. And that's nice. It's it's a very positive side effect. And it's it's in a way what we always wanted with the company is to be known on quality. And that's what, what is happening. People know us on quality. And that doesn't mean only on the micro lot of Brazil, but it means also on the Brazil 1718 strictly soft fine cup from Sudimina. 
but sourced through one one cooperative. Always the same thing, doing the same thing. It could be on a Colombia Excel, so it could be on a on a Kenya AB plus. So so it's after three years of working on that, we finally get the recognition. And and yeah, it's it's just the hundred percent of the production that we're looking at. Cool. Well, thank you so much for all this amazing information. I learned a lot, especially about the uh, pro- process bringing coffee from the origin to Europe, in our case. And um, I wish you the best, and I hope you're going to bring us more good coffee. Um, <laughs> it's an everyday, not challenge, but uh, let's say a, a, a hunt. It's a hunt for the best coffees. And we're having fun doing it, and it's it brings so much nice things back. Like a podcast with Valerian. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really cool you're doing this, and I love working together with you guys. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed listening to Jean the same way I did. Thank you for spending your time with us. I'll put all links discussed in the show notes to this episode. Just go to coffees.me slash 32 cups and you will see the episode and the notes there. If you have further questions for Jean or me, join our Facebook group coffees.me and ask a question in the comments below to the link to this episode. Jean is already there and he will be happy to answer your questions. Do not forget to tag Jean or me depending who is the question intended for. The easiest way to join our Facebook group is go to the podcast website coffeeis.me and click community on the top menu. This will take you to our Facebook group. Click apply and I will approve you. One sad news for this episode. I did not get any new reviews on iTunes. So this week we do not have any winner. Oh well, perhaps next time. In order to win Bootcamp Barista online course access, you need to leave iTunes reviews. So if you are interested, go to iTunes and leave me honest review. What do you think about this show and why do you like it or not? (laughs) Thank you very much for all your reviews and support until next time bye this show is brought to you by bootcamp coffee online education for coffee roasters and professionals subscribe to bootcampcoffee.com today and unlock the quality of your coffee